Welcome to Insight, the insurance news podcast hosted by me, Andrew Sawcox. In this week's edition of Insight, we wonder if it's coincidence that our 666 edition came out on Halloween. That's pumpkin to think about. Last week, we analyzed the federal budget and there's a few things about insurance that could come in candy. Even more wild weather at the moment is giving us the sheets and we reviewed the Finity report on insurer profitability, which makes for an irresistible reading. What's up, witches? Terry is too scared to come into the office, but I'm joined by senior journalists, Bloody Bernice Han and Miranda Monster Maxwell, deputy editor, Wendy the Witch Pew, and editor, John Deadly Deeks. Hi, Miranda. What scares you? Good morning, Andrew. Well, the sight of my teenage daughter going to a Halloween sleepover in the mall dressed as Wizard of Oz was pretty scary. Hello, Bernice. Hi, Andrew. Are you a trick or a treat? I think trick. <laughs> Good morning, John. Oh. Did you trick or treat yesterday? No, I didn't. And we bought some 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 sweets to give out to uh, anyone who came around and not a single person knocked on the door. Must be uh, the La Nina weather, I think. And hello, Wendy. Good morning, Andrew. Listeners have you to blame for this extra special intro, don't they? Well, why me? <laughs> well, I guess they do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Wendy, we'll start with you. You were reporting on the federal budget last week and it contained a fair bit about insurance. Uh, well, it did. I mean, firstly, it formalised the government's commitment to spend uh, $200 million a year on res- resilience and mitigation. But as well as that, there were a bunch of insurance-specific measures aimed at addressing rising premiums and helping people be better prepared. As part of this, Australian Climate Service is going to put together a data set on uh, affordability under insurance and non-insurance so they have a better picture of the problems. And there's going to be a new hazards insurance partnership, which sounds like it's going to involve government insurers and others in collaborating on finding solutions. Uh, And they're going to set up a mitigation measures knowledge base to help people know what they can do and look at opportunities for public-private partnerships to invest in risk reduction measures. And as well as that, they've revived plans to introduce consistent standard definitions for natural hazards, which they did some time ago for flood, but also for other types of perils, uh, and look at the whole issue of standard cover. So insurance becomes simpler for consumers and people understand what's covered and what's not in their policies. Well, that sounds quite a lot. John, are the politicians on the right track here? Well, it sounds like they are really. I mean, we know that Insurance affordability is is a major issue. It's a it's a rising issue. But what we also know, and we'll discuss this later, is that insurers are not making obscene profits. Far from it. I spoke to Stephen Jones, the financial services minister, a while back, and 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 he said most of the solutions to this problem are not within insurance, uh, which shows a really good understanding that you know the only way really to fix this stuff is is to lower the risk. Now, we don't know exactly what the hazard insurance partnership is or what it's going to do. Uh, Likewise, the strategic insurance project. But I mean, they sound good, don't they? And I do think there is an understanding now that, um, yeah, to fix this stuff, we really got to get to the core of the issue and and, and really invest in mitigation, as the industry has been saying for years. On the one hand, 200 million for risk mitigation sounds a lot. But on the other hand, it doesn't sound much at all. 
Well, Wendy, there were also some major developments at state level, weren't there? Yes. The federal and New South Wales governments announced a jointly funded uh, $800 million resilience program for the Northern Rivers communities that were devastated in the floods earlier this year. So this provides for people um, up to $100,000 for uh, house raising or up to $50,000 for property retrofitting where the the, um, risks can be reduced by introducing uh, better building standards. Uh, And for those in the most vulnerable areas will be money for voluntary buybacks so people can move to safer locations. And in Queensland, you know, a similar program was announced there earlier this year, which was a 741 million program. And and last week, they said arrangements had been made with Suncorp and RACQ. So the insurance claims process can dovetail with that program. So policyholders can access funds to build back better at the same time as insurance repair work is completed. John, do you think these programs will have a major impact? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, um, when you think the the New South Wales uh, project is talking about being accessible to about 2,000 homeowners, I guess if you put that in the context of the February-March flood catastrophe, which is, I can't remember how many exactly, but something like 240,000 claims, then it's not a huge number of people, but it, it probably is the worst affected people. And it's probably those people who who can't get flood insurance, or if they can, then it's, it's far too expensive to afford. So, yeah, I think, I think these projects are really positive because they're going to lift the most uh, vulnerable people out of harm's way and help insurers too, because they won't have to be paying out claims to these homeowners pretty much every year. With the Queensland one, I think it's really positive to see Suncorp and RACQ insurance coordinating with the programme Andrew Hall at the ICA a while back raised an issue of, you know, we don't really know how to fit this stuff into the claims process. So it's great that it's all coming together and working together. It'll mean that uh, work isn't wasted or duplicated and it should leave the homeowners in a much better place. Well, much of this action is spiralling out of the wild weather we've been having, Miranda. What's the latest on that front? Well, the flood claims just keep rising. The ICA is saying that since the drought broke, we've had $9 billion worth of claims, almost 600,000 flood claims. And even from the latest catastrophe that's still unfolding in three states, we've had about 14,000 claims. The Actuaries Institute puts together a climate index every quarter, and that's showing that the region that has Sydney and surrounds in had you know, extreme wet weather and this is becoming more frequent. So they're really backing the budget, backing all these calls for mitigation, which the ICA is always calling for, and just saying that, you know, as, as sad as it is to ask people in areas like Lismore to move, it's harder on mental health to just continually have these catastrophes and that that's unsustainable. So really they're applauding that everyone's sort of woken up to the fact we have to mitigate and get in ahead of the game rather than fix it after. Well, John, the analysis from last week on farms and flooding also certainly caught readers' attention, didn't it? Yes, that's right. So just to recap, the analysis last week was uh, sparked by a couple who live out near Shepparton who um, they live on a rural property and their home was flooded uh, and they weren't covered for flood. But more than that, the broker said, no insurer would have covered you for flood because you were on a farm property. Now, we had quite a lot of reaction to our story. The Insurance Council said 
initially that uh, flood cover was available for all properties, including farm. Uh, but we had a bit of a backlash from brokers who said, well, we're, we're not aware of any cover. So, you know, if it's out there, let us know who's doing it. We then spoke to the major underwriters, CGU, QBE, Allianz, and they confirmed that they don't cover uh, flood on farms, mainly because on larger properties, they can't properly assess the flood risk, they say, uh, because they don't know exactly where the home asset is located. But we did have a call from Achmere, Australia. Now, they say we do offer flood for farms. In fact, it's built into our policies. The only problem for brokers is that Achmere is uh, a direct insurer. They don't sell through, through brokers. They, they talk directly to the farmers and do it that way. So it turns out the ICA was right in a way. The, the cover is out there, but it doesn't really help brokers as far as I can tell. Albanese, we uh, always sit up and take notice when Marsh releases its commercial pricing index. What are the key takeaways this quarter? So for the third quarter, and we're talking about July to set, um, quarter, uh, July to September, the three-month period. So we've, and referring to the Australian market here when we talk about the rates. So um, the rates went up uh, 5% overall. And one of the key takeaways, and I guess relief or good news for insurers, for insurers who have endured the hard cycle for the last couple of years, is that the pace of rate rises continue to weaken. So just to put things in context, um, in the June quarter, prices were up 7%. So in fact, they've been slowing down since uh, reaching a peak in 2020, uh, the, fourth of 20, the fourth quarter of 2020 to be exact. Another trend worth pointing out is that directors and officers or DNO prices fell again in September in the September quarter. So that's two straight quarters of contraction. And again, to put things in context, the previous quarter's decline, um, the June quarter was actually the first contraction since 2017. So Marsh um, says premium reductions are now the norm in uh, DNO in the DNO line. Um, there's more capacity coming through, and insurers are competing for business. So, so that is good news for you know um, Australian businesses. And just very quickly on the floods and its impact on property pricing, property rates went up four percent. So this is just a tad weaker than the uh, previous quarter's five percent rise. So Marsh says the floods are having an impact, but the focus is on clients in flood affected zones. Yep. So um, that's just a key takeaways from the Marsh report. Well, so prices are still going up, Wendy, but should clients be reassured by this report? Well, it does seem that a bit of the heat is still coming out of the uh, commercial market, particularly in DNO, which was such a problem area a few years ago. And I think there are also some sort of positives that, you know, cyber wasn't skyrocketing upwards either. But, you know, as, as um, Bernice points out, you know, um, uh, clients have been affected by recent catastrophes, still face some issues, and they're going to face a lot of uh, scrutiny at their next renewals. And in reinsurance prices and inflation are uh, key factors too. So, you know, I wouldn't say it's um, a, a completely reassuring report. I mean, for some, it looks like um, positive news, but there'll be plenty of clients still facing higher prices and, you know, possibly other um, restrictions or actions of, of affecting cover. Well, at the other end of the spectrum, what about insurer profitability? Finity's annual Optima report is out and makes for some interesting reading too. 
Well, it does. And unfortunately, you know, um, an expected rebound didn't quite happen uh, as expected because uh, there was uh, an investment loss of more than $2 billion for the industry, which was the first since the um, Australian Prudential Regulation Authority began keeping records. So um, the uh, return on equity um, for fiscal 22 was only marginally better than the year before at 3%. And the result marks the third year in a row of returns before below 5%. But the the good news is that they're um, expecting um, the investment loss, which is actually kind of a paper loss, you know, mark to market thing because of um, rising interest rates and the impact on bond value. So that's meant to turn around and we're now looking at a $3 billion profit and a rebound in the return on equity to more than uh, 7%. Again, putting that in perspective, that's actually still below the the target. So um, perhaps things aren't quite where they would like them to be. And you've also got the issue that um, claims inflation is is a big issue and it's not going away in a hurry. So, of course, there's always a lot of uncertainty about investment markets as well. So we'll have to see. Well, supposedly next year will be better, John. Do we believe it? Well, I'm not sure. The one thing I would say is that I think for the past two Optima reports, profitability has been very low and they've said next year will be better. And it hasn't quite turned out that way. It's not the fault of the experts at Finity. Obviously, they can't foresee things like uh, war in, in Ukraine or um, flood events of the scale of the one that we had in February or, or March. So they make their predictions and then um, they tend to be knocked off course by these unprecedented events that we've been seeing. So next year, who knows? Uh, hopefully that profitability will start to tick up as they predict. But if we get another unforeseen event that impacts insurers in, in, in the way that we've had over the last few years, we could continue to struggle. So let's just wait and see, I guess. Well, finally, Miranda, as our InsureTech correspondent, you've been working on a major new report. What was investor appetite like in the last quarter? Yes, so this is hot off the press from Gallagher Re. In the third quarter, global investment in InsureTech was quite similar to the second quarter. It came in at 2.35 billion US dollars. If you dig down into it, though, early stage funding was up almost 50% quarter on quarter because there was the second highest quarterly number of seed funding deals ever. There were also quite a few mega round funding deals. So they scooped up 1.2 billion of the funding, which was double the previous quarter. I had a great interview with the head of Institute globally, Andrew Johnston, on Friday night. And he was telling me investment is tracking what they call a barbell phenomenon. And that's where the startups on one end and the well-known large institutes on the other end are getting all the funding backers. But there's a bit of a dearth of investment in between, which is a problem because they're the ones trying to grow and it's quite a capital-intensive stage to be in. He had a lot more to say, including that institutes should really be about collaboration with incumbents because disruption just hasn't worked. And also that Australia is a shining example to the world of how to go about Institech innovation and investment in the right way. So he's British and based in Nashville, but he spent a lot of time down under and he talked about our success stories such as Cover Genius and Handy and Floodmap. And we'll have a report online about that soon. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's Insight Podcast by Insurance News. Thank you once again to our panel, Bernice Han, Miranda Maxwell, John Deeks and Wendy Pugh. Enjoy your week and thank you all for listening.
If you have any questions or comments, please email us at editor at insurancenews.com.au. We value your input. You can read all these stories and many others at your leisure at insurancenews.com.au. You can subscribe to the Insight Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google, and all your favorite podcast platforms now. We look forward to catching up again next week.